It's Tuesday, July 13th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, the Chief Investment Officer, Andy Cross. Thanks for being here. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Always love being on uh, your shows and talking stocks and talking businesses. So, earlier this month on Motley Fool Money, um, Jason Moser, Emily Flippin, and I did sort of a, you know, looking ahead to the second half of the year. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this um, because uh, I've said before that I think that cybersecurity as an industry has now moved its way into what I think of as the must-have in a portfolio. Like if you're if you have a diversified portfolio, you've got you know 20, 25 stocks, and you look in your portfolio and you don't have any exposure to cybersecurity, you need to rethink that because I just think the future is is so promising for that industry. Uh, that's one of the things I'm going to be watching in the second half of 2021. But what about you? Well, Chris, I, I didn't know you were going to mention cybersecurity. I think that is definitely one. I, I'll mention something differently, but I think looking at cybersecurity in the market, companies like Zscaler, like CrowdStrike, which we've talked uh, before and have recommended the Motley Fool, I think are exceptional companies, both founder-led, both business with, ex- with really high growth rates, adding to their revenue uh, profile expanding their products so I think I think you're dead on with cybersecurity that's 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 a great one to watch I, I'm really just fascinated by the whole move on the retail investor understanding and the looking at what they are doing in the markets how much they are putting into stocks we, we we're hey you and I are individual investors and we love <laughs> love our retail investors um, we, we really have seen this exceptional growth I mean this year um, JMP Securities had estimated that 10 million accounts were opened at brokerage houses just this year alone, matching all of 2020. You look at the amount of money going into equity funds, they're at record levels, $28 billion put into um, put into stocks in uh, just June alone. That was the highest in 2014. $580 billion, almost $600 billion went into global stocks funds during the first half of this year. That's already, a re- that was a record by, by a long shot. And if that pace just continued, Bank of America estimates that that for the year, if that pace continued for the year, that would match the amount of money that retail investors put into uh, uh, equity funds and global stock funds of all the past 20 years. So you're seeing a lot of exceptional activity going in from going into the retail investors. We know what's going on with Robinhood. We know what's going on with the meme stocks. So much wealth is tied into the financial assets today at record levels, according to the Federal Reserve. So I'm just really interested to see how that trend continues. We now you know, we, we basically lapsed a year of when we first started seeing the COVID impacts, Chris, and we started seeing a lot of money flow into um, into our, our, our savings accounts from the federal governments and from lots of other stimulus that is still out there, that is still happening to some degree, and there's still a lot of money saved. The savings rates have really spiked over the last few months and over the last year or so. How that money gets deployed as we start to change our spending and buying habits, whether that starts to not be as interesting to put into stocks and invest or trade into stocks, especially if markets start to go through a little bit of a, you know, of a lull, I'll say, if they don't, they don't always just go up from the lows of 2020. I'm really interested just to continue to watch this explosion of, of retail investing and trading. In one ways, I'm super excited 
because I love to see more people get invest, get invested and get involved in what we think is, is the greatest way to create legal way, essentially to create wealth for regular people out there. So I love seeing that. Um, I just hope it continues and I hope it continues in a healthy way. And when I see some activity out there, as we've talked about over the, over the years, it does start to look just a little bit, a little bit frothy to me. I know that one of the categories of stocks that you look at are small caps. And I'm wondering if you think we as investors need to recalibrate what we consider to be small caps as a category, just because we're now living in a world where there are companies with market caps north of $1 trillion. Um, You know, when you and I were starting out, you know, you there were people, you know, professionals in the financial industry who would tell you if a company has a market cap north of one to two billion dollars, it's no longer a small cap. I'm wondering if now we need to like ramp up what we think of as small caps as anything under 10 or maybe even anything under 20 billion. Yeah, and they, they do vary, Chris. And I think certainly sometimes we don't index ourselves to inflation there. Gosh, when, when Tom, Bill, and I were were running hidden gems and we were looking at small cap companies, we were looking at less than less than $2 billion, And we've now steadily raised that ourselves as we think about our small cap investing strategy up to as high as $7 billion, maybe even higher. And I think you're right. You do have to, as you start to to understand where, how the markets and the impact of these large cap and the successful, these massively successful companies like Apple and Microsoft and Google and Facebook and the rest, and and so many global companies as well too, and just you know markets get high, grow grow over time, and so we have to we have to catalog we have to we have to recognize that, and so we do have to adjust our expectation. Just one quick antidote: I was talking to one of our investor analysts recently, and he mentioned the term unicorn. I haven't really heard the term. Unicorn, which is a company that comes public at north of a billion dollars in market cap. I hadn't really heard that term in a long, at least a year. And that's because if you're not coming at a billion dollars in market cap, you're almost like, you're like an afterthought, right? It's, it's like, why even bother? Because these companies are coming public at such huge valuations now. Um, so so I think that is, we do have to kind of recognize and catalog and, 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 and think about um, the how we think about market capitalizations and and there are so many large companies out there that if you are are, are looking more at the small cap market you know looking at that that really real the really micro side level you know you got to be careful with that because you might be looking at a lot more uh, speculative maybe penny stocks companies that that probably deserve to be down that level yeah the idea that a unicorn you know oh it, it, in the private markets its valuation is over one billion dollars. It's like, I, I th- yeah. If we're going to keep the term unicorn, we're going to have to raise the ceiling on that to a hundred billion. I, yeah, exactly. I was like, what number do we go to, and what na- funny name can we think about? Maybe, maybe listeners can 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 email you in with some fun names to to think about the valuations of some of the companies that come public. Because you know, we're just seeing really over the past two years, we're just seeing these outrageous valuations for some of these IPO companies. Uh, when I asked Jason and Emily about Look, the market's up more than 14% the first half of the year. That's great. Um, There's no reason to think um, it can't continue in the second half. But not everybody had a great first half. And when I asked them who needs a strong second half of the year, uh, half of the year, they mentioned, respectively, Peloton and and Qdel. 
I'm curious when you look at the universe of stocks out there, what's a business that you look at and you think, ah, they, they, really, they really need a strong second half? Well, it's, it's 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 one. It's a business I like, and um, I, it's it's well known. And speaking of unicorns, this came out at a very lofty valuation as Airbnb. Um, but the past few months have been a little bit a little bit rough for Airbnb. Now, now they had a really uh, challenging, obviously, period from two, that late 2019 through 2020 when they saw their gross bookings fall um, somewhere in the 40 percent range. Right when they saw just travel just slowed to a crawl, if not went in reverse. Um, but now we're going to start to see that unlock. And I think the recent um, the stock activity of the past year is how does this really truly, as we think about this new economy post-COVID, um, how do we think about our travel? How do we utilize Airbnb? What services are they providing that I that consumers really need and really want. Um, what is the regulatory risk for for those um, people who are ho- those hosts out there in different cities as we start to see more and more regulation creep up around um, different uh, municipalities and different cities towards Airbnb um, hosts and providers? Um, consumers start to see other options now. Hotels are reopened. They've doing a, a really very nice job on 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 um, all the COVID protocols. So um, I look at Airbnb. I see a stock that's down. We have a market cap that's that's gosh now probably 85 billion. A few, a few months ago it was north of 100, 115 billion. So so you've seen the market kind of react to well. How is Airbnb going to benefit over the next year? I think it's truly over the short term. However, the long term advantages and the um, competitive advantage to Airbnb, I think, continues to get stronger and stronger over time. Um, they made some changes to their website, enhanced their business. I think they have a leading brand position. Um, I really like the spirit of how they support their hosts and use it as a way to. Uh, it's 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 a it's a very it's a very diverse. Um, host um, clientele, and I like that. It really supports entrepreneurs in that way. So, so Airbnb is one that I'm I'm really interested to watch, and I think long term over the next next say you know three to five years it can do quite well. But I do see this year being a little bit of a of an inflection point as people start to normalize their expectation for Airbnb the stock tied to the business as we start to reopen. Do you think, look, obviously Airbnb is competing with the hotels and vice versa, but I'm wondering if you think there's a degree to which they each have a little bit of a moat against the other with respect to who are the people who are doing the the booking? Because I, I look at Airbnb and for all of the attractiveness of the business, I don't see it as being particularly compelling for business travelers. Whereas I feel, you know, so that's that's both great in some ways that they don't have the risk because business travel is is returning, but it's returning slowly. And it's going to be a while before it gets back to the levels it was at in 2019. Um, by the same token, they don't really have the opportunity that the hotels have in terms of um, the way that they cater to the business market and um, even even things like rewards programs. 
I think that's right, Chris. They, they, it really is tailored to, to, to experiences and travel, consumer travel, holidays, getting away, getting out, whether local or, or, or distant, which I think is an advantage for Airbnb. It, that, that is for hotels, too. Um, hotels certainly cater to the business clientele. Like airlines, they make a lot of money from the business clientele. I think that is going to be disrupted uh, more permanently. I, I Businesses will still travel. You know, we know uh, Jamie Dimon is very eager to get his people uh, back into at J.P. Morgan, get their people back into the office and, and on the roads again. And I know a lot of business people are excited to get on the roads again to to make those face-to-face relationships. So it's not going away. I just think it is going to be changed um, in and from the past year and a half experiences, what we've learned the value of not having to travel um, from from a from a personnel perspective and from, a, from an efficiency perspective, and certainly from a cost perspective, Chris, we're seeing a lot of companies talk about this in their conference calls. The fact that the low travel value, the the, the value from not having to spend travel when it comes to their profitability, is no is not going to be the case going forward as it was the past year. So they're kind of like guiding analysts ex- to to expect that. So there is value from not having to travel as much as, as a business, but there is value to the business. I think that does impact uh, hotels more so than Airbnb. Airbnb does have some other challenges, regulatory challenges, consumer challenges, a very competitive market. There are a lot of options out there. So you do have that dynamic. It is a little bit of a, like you said, a little protection from each other. But really, in the end, you in so many ways, you are still competing. You know, I could stay at a Marriott. We stayed downtown for the fireworks this 4th of July. We didn't even think about it in Airbnb just because of the convenience with the hotel. And we knew it all and was all, all locked into our credit card points and mileage. And we just set it on autopilot and they set it up for us. Airbnb, a little bit of a different story because they don't have that advantage. But they do offer a much more diverse set of experiences, which is what consumers want. It was nice that uh, the fireworks in D.C. We like it wasn't cloudy, it wasn't rainy. It was like the first time in years. Like, oh no, it actually worked this year. The weather gods were in our favor. It, it, it was amazing. It actually July Fourth is my wife Jamie's birthday, and she was just so thrilled that it's like the nicest weather for her birthday in like twenty years. So we were very excited. Yeah, it was a great, great way to spend a July Fourth on a reopening weekend. Andy Cross, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.